Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Scotch with Room. <laughs> uh, Alright, I'm gonna start over. You can cut this part out. Okay. Uh, you can't. You should cut this part out. You should cut this part out? I don't understand what you're saying. Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Ethan in a Room with Scotch, the <laughs> podcast in which, because Michael will not do the bare minimum amount of effort to make me not look like an idiot, I drink scotch by myself. Okay, fine. It's Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch, and I'm going to sk- share the scotch with Michael, even though he made me read this giant book that I hated, but maybe I didn't hate it as much as I think. But maybe I did. Maybe your own perception of yourself and the world around you is not the truth? Well, that's... Very postmodernist of you. <laughs> or just postmodern, I'm not sure. Uh, it's like that thing where you're supposed to tell a child, like, you're not helping instead of you're not a helper. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Anyway. So, we're gonna talk about books, but not about scotch. But we're gonna drink a scotch. We are gonna drink a scotch. <laughs> Thank you there, Mr. Gower. <laughs> Not Perry and being a canary. <laughs> I'm your host, Ethan Bartlett, and this is my guest, quote unquote, Michael Lilienthal. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Was I quoting guest or was I quoting Michael Lilienthal? Who knows? Good. Yep. So, gentle listener, as you no doubt know if you've listened to three out of the last four episodes, we are drinking. Lagavulin, 16-year-old Isla Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Indeed. It is in a green-tinted bottle. It is an amber-tinted liquor. Liquor, I hardly know. Um, (laughs) And it is very good. Very good. But we're not reviewing it yet. Nope. Because Karen... Come on, stop ruining the podcast, Ethan. I know. I ruined the podcast by uncorking the scotch too soon. Karen needs to please read the rules. Karen, what are the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen. You want some scotch?
Uh-huh. Stop looking at me like that. Not you. Oh. I'm talking to Karen. Oh, she doesn't want scotch, though. No. Man. Danke. Bitte. Ha, I know German, too. Whoa! Didn't see that coming. You did not see that coming? Nope. That was a, that was a Nazi joke. Oh, I see. Or did I not see? Oh! Ha-ha! <laughs> Recovered from that one. Quite a... I thought I was going to think of another German pun, but I didn't. <laughs> Too close to English. Too close the, to English. The German language, yeah. yeah. That's why mm-hmm. I didn't think of it. Yeah. What are we doing? This podcast. What is even this show? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess we have to clink glasses so that the rules go into effect. Yeah. And remember, gentle listener, with our newly added rule for this, our fourth season, uh, mm-hmm. if Michael doesn't man up and lose by the end of this episode, <laughs> we both lose. And does anyone really want to see that? I think they all do. Shoot. Brost. So, what do you want to talk about? How about this book? Alright, so like... I knew we were going to talk about this book. I was trying to do a thing where, like, I let you pick, like, the opening topic from this book with the assumption that it was this book, but... Oh, okay. Instead, like, early, sure. early jerkwad, Philip, you <laughs> took my statement at face value rather than understanding the socioeconomic and also cultural conditions that forced me to uh, give my meaning in a more hidden way. Indeed. You know, oh. you, you referenced the idea that early Philip was jerk and late Philip was maybe better. I, I a bit. in fact, did that in a margin note oh. that I wrote that I meant to read last oh, episode. Okay. Sorry, yeah, I'll, no, that's I'll fine. keep your place. Um, so, I, I it, in the last episode, I made a big deal of this statement. He knew her pretty well by now, and her manner did not surprise him. Right. To right. show the turn from his sort of jerkwad way of dealing with Mildred not giving him exactly what he wanted to being a more mature person. Right. But what I did write in the margin is because he's older and not as much of an ass now. Uh-huh. 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 So. Well, yes. And and that's maybe what part of what I want to hit on here. going to say, how, how does I feel this like you're going to problematize that, no, which is like you. Uh, how does this book begin, Ethan? With the beginning. Yeah, but what, well, what is the beginning? With what the first you, words in it. What are those words? Uh, something it. about the stupid weather. Yeah, the stupid weather. The day broke gray and, and dull. stupid. <laughs> gray and dull. The clouds hung heavily and there was a rawness in the air that suggested snow. How does the book end? One of the last four words. Michael is a poopy butt face. <laughs> Those are more than four words. Yeah, they're also not the actual last four yeah. words. Um, much as I would like to imply that Somerset Mom <laughs> anticipated this very conversation, he is not Agnes Nutter. Um, 
No, the last four words, as I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. the sun was shining. Oh! And that's, that is, you know, as much as I did physically throw this book across the room on at least one to two occasions, <laughs> that is an example of why I have have not, nor will I, argue that Maum is a bad writer who doesn't know exactly what he's doing. Because mm-hmm. I mentioned in the first episode that you are super not supposed to begin a novel with the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's it's it's just like one of those things that it, it shows up on every, like, this writer's list of things to avoid in your first novel is, like, beginning with the weather. Yep. Um... And it's it's just because it's everyone's instinct, and you know if you're doing it, it's probably lazy. Mm-hmm. But that word probably covers a multitude of sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I you I did not catch it um, having read it, but now that you point it out, uh, yeah, yep. that's that's just further evidence that mom knew exactly what he was doing Mm -hmm. with that opening and closing he very much did and there's an interesting relationship that philip has with the sun throughout the novel i didn't catch that at all please elaborate Um, there's a there's a point the the one that is really um striking to me is uh when he is in the south and it's nearing the end of his um kind of apprenticeship there with dr south um, and he goes to, yeah, I know, which it's great. He's in the South with Dr. <laughs> South. Uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering if mom just didn't phone it in on that one. <laughs> um, but, uh, he, he goes out on a, on a visit with a patient, uh, and gets back home much later than Dr. South was expecting him. Right. And he asks him what took him so long. He says, Philip says, I stopped to look at the sunrise, or to the, look at the sunset oh. um, uh, on the way home. And the, then after a little while, Dr. South says, why did you look at the sunset? Philip says, because I was happy. And there is that relationship that you, you would almost expect that sun, sunlight is a symbol of happiness for Philip. Mm. Um, and that's that you, you can see that all over. There are other places too. And I'm, I don't have my copy in front of me when, where I noted those various places, but, um, there are numerous times when if it's dark out, if it's cloudy, uh, he's in a much darker place. Oh, interesting. Um, it's, uh, so he has seasonal affective disorder. Kind of. Yeah. You're propounding here. More or less. Yeah. Uh, but in a literary sense. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, uh, the, this, the, the weather does present Philip mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, um, especially with the attitude of the sun. Like it's, um, it's at nighttime when he interacts in the worst ways with Mildred, hmm. when he finds her out at night, uh, and it's at night when his impulses are, are most difficult to control. Sure. Um, that uh, that's that's when he goes and follows Mildred for one. Um, sure. And yeah. That's, yeah. That's that's also when um, he he's even walking with Sally at the end. Sure. Um, before they you know wind up getting married, he you know is walking along with her and then takes her into the bushes to you know do what they do. Um, 
<laughs> what? What is that? What do they do in the bushes? No, they, mom never told me, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Your mom never told you I what people know. do in the bushes? <gasps> you just lost! Oh my god! Yes! Oh. Yes! Oh, I'm so you know what? happy! I'm sort of okay with it, though. I'm so happy! Because I did, and I'm going to say I'm not losing again, because this is just reiterating. I did get to say your mom never told you what you, <laughs> what people do in the bushes. <laughs> you did. You did get to do that. All right, we'll punish you at the end. Oh, I'm <sighs> so happy. I'm so mad. <laughs> I'm so happy. Because I've gone... We've gone four entire episode I runs know. without either of us losing. Oh. <sighs> yes. Oh, I'm so pleased. Anyway, um, so yes. Speaking of what people do in the bushes. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, that, that, that itself is, is interesting too. And it's just Moam being a product of his time that, uh, you know, the sex scenes are not explicit, but right. you know exactly what's happening. Right. And I would argue, though, perhaps even more explicit than people at his time would have liked. Well, see, that's an interesting uh, uh, thought because D.H. Lawrence mm. did write at the same time, like within. That's true. I forget when Lady Chatterley's Lover came out, but it was within I want to say five to ten years on either side of nineteen fifteen. Yeah. Um, so it's actually, and there, there's some other things that, that are options that um, I noted throughout the book, and of course I can't think of any examples right now, but they're either Malm being more Victorian mm -hmm. than he had to be in 1915, or being more modern than he might have had to be in yeah, 1915. He, he is kind of at a weird nexus in that way. He, he is a little bit of a transitional author, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, there, there are certain things here that not only read sort of a dated to a modern eye, but I think might have read a little bit dated to someone in 1915. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The, which is which is not to contradict that uh, the idea that there would be some people in, in 1915 for whom the sex scenes that are in this one mm -hmm. would be a little bit too explicit. Sure. Um, you know, obviously, Lady Chatterley's Lover was was extremely mm. controversial and was banned. Oh yes, um, right at this time. Uh, I did. That was something I haven't really talked about a lot. Was there a, was there a station you were piloting this train for? Not necessarily. Okay. Just an interesting thing. Because this is a this is a digression, but it's something I thought about a lot while reading that I haven't. Now that I've broken the microphone. Yeah, I was going to say, gentle listener, if you felt your equilibrium suddenly shift, it's because Michael viciously punched the microphone. <laughs> um, because punishing me later wasn't enough. He had to punish me through all of you. Mm -hmm. Because you know that nothing... Punish those you love. ...hurts me worse than, yeah, seeing you beloved ones suffer <laughs> by getting punched in the earbuds. I don't know. Because anyway. you're nothing if not, you know... Loving of children. No, I hate children. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh. Anyway. Um, what you oh, so yeah. Uh, there's always... I, I was digressing from my digression to say there's always like one thing that I'm thinking about 
the entire time I read a book for one of these shows mm-hmm. that does not show up in oh, the actual sure. episode. Like, for example, did I ever ask you in, like, an After Hours episode, which is what I call our conversations about the show after, <laughs> the after we stop hours recording? <laughs> yeah. The ones that not even patrons get to hear. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exclusively for our wives. <laughs> Sometimes not even for them. Mm-hmm. Especially if you count whether they're paying attention or not. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, what rhetorical device Don Quixote is the most fond of? That also Hamlet mm-hmm. is the most fond of? Maybe. I, I, Something about that sounds familiar. Okay, I think I may have asked it of you, but it may have been, again, at, truly after hours in the mm-hmm. sense of after a four-episode run. Right. And you know what that would mean. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, Don, Don Quixote and also Hamlet were very fond of the Hendiades. Yes, that's right. Where, for the gentle listeners' uh, edification here, um, the Hendiades is a fairly rare rhetorical device where um, you say the same thing with an and in between, but you use synonyms. So instead of, like, lots and lots, you might say, like, many and lots or something Mm -hmm. um the only one i can think of right now is hamlet saying uh the book and volume of my brain Mm -hmm. um so you have you have book and you have volume which volume is just another word for book and it sets up this like tension of like you're saying the same thing but you're saying it differently so your denotations are the same but your connotations are different yep um and i wanted to talk all about that in the don quixote episodes but even though we spent four and sort of technically five episodes on that. Oh. Uh, I don't know why I said five just now. Why did you say five? I don't know, it's weird. It was like I got a transmission from another dimension. Anyway, <laughs> um, I never managed to, no. to bring that up. Anyway, um, a thing I did think about this entire time reading of Human Bondage is how transitional of a writer, to use your phrase from a mm-hmm. couple minutes ago, that mom is. Because... Um, you know, in some way, like, if you told if you told someone that this novel had been written in, say, 1880, like, smack dab in the middle of the Gilded Age, like sure. the Victorian Age, probably, unless they were very astute about catching certain very specific historical references, probably it, it wouldn't occur to them to question it. Sure. Um, based on most of the style and the, the, the stuff in this novel. Um, but you have to keep in mind, this is, you know, within five to ten years of... Hemingway, this is like yeah. uh, um, Ulysses is released mm-hmm. in 1920, five years later. Right. Um, excuse me. This is this is a, a, you know, almost as if, man, I don't even know. Almost as if someone in the 1950s had like made a silent film, in some mm. ways. Okay. That's, that's maybe a bit of a strained analogy, but no, but I get it. Like. He does kind of back himself up to the Victorian era, which part of it might be that a lot of the plot takes place in that era. Yeah. That Philip lives through the end of that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's, and especially with some of those references to uh, uh, Madame Bovary, potentially to Goethe. Um, certainly to La Boheme, you know, yeah. 
they're they're all very much Victorian cultural touchstones. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising, and it's certainly not inappropriate. No. Um, but it's it's interesting because until you, well, I guess first until I read the the foreword, and then until you pointed out the sort of spareness and almost like workmanlike nature of the prose, mm-hmm. I had thought of it as very Victorian. Sure. Um, I don't I don't think it is on a prose level. Like if you analyzed a sentence from Maum up against, say, a sentence from Dickens, um, yeah, or even Twain at some of his more florid sentences. Um, I think Mom would come out sounding on a sentence level much more modern, but I think that the beats, the the amount of time he spends on um, elements, especially like inner monologue and thoughts and philosophy, as well as just purely the the weight of his paragraphs, where he yeah. has you know page and a half long paragraphs. I think all of those things are much more Victorian. I can I can see that definitely. Yeah, that's I don't know. I, I think that's something that I could research more and be more interested yeah. to look into. I mean, I, you know, we were always taught as, like, undergraduate English majors that, like, you read a novel the first time sort of just for pleasure, and you just sort of let it wash over you, and you read it the second time to, like, do all of your analysis work, right? Mm-hmm. Which is obviously definitely what we did with all of our novels when we were undergraduates uh-huh. um, forever. We definitely read them at least two times, if not three or four. Oh, yes. And we definitely never just sort of skimmed slash skipped entire chapters of Waverly by Walter Scott because we discovered we could do it without why would, why not, would do that? Oh. Uh, without affecting our understanding of the actual plot at all. Right. None of those are things we did. No. Yeah. But anyway... I, I personally, like, at this point, you know, having done the Masters and all that garbage, I, uh, I can um, pretty much do, like, a for-pleasure re- reading and an analysis reading sort of side-by-side on a first read of a book. Sure. I certainly won't catch everything, especially no. the denser that an author is. Um, but the one thing I can't do on a first read is analyze for, like sentence structure yeah unless i stop and just do it without paying attention to anything else right yeah and and that that'd be something where it would have to be striking enough to make me pause and say okay i want to look at this for a little bit yeah which like i'll on a first read if a book if a you know book is interesting enough that way i will do that sure but it's definitely a, a code switch thing like i'll if i'm doing if i'm tearing apart the sentence structure that's all i'm doing at a given point and i'm not doing even any of the other analysis let alone sort of taking in the story holistically sure. yeah i don't know did you have any more you wanted to say about that sentence structures no style nothing things? occurs to me uh can i divert this podcast for a minute into names with michael yes please name 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 Names with Michael. Uh, I like the the gesture you did yeah. of like 
It was. It really wasn't like a good driving gesture. It was like a gesture where you take the car from the middle of the road and just put it straight in the ditch. And I am expecting that That's exactly what we're doing <laughs> with our increased season four production budget. I'm expecting that sound effect to be added into <laughs> the names with Michael uh, uh. Uh, soundscape. Which we do all know is the only thing you actually put any effort into in the editing. It's true. So here we go to Names with Michael. Uh, this will be a brief-ish uh, Names with Michael. I mostly want to focus on the name of our main character. What is our main character's name, Ethan? Uh, Mildred <laughs> Lewurst. Which is Mildred Lewurst. Names with Ethan, French for Mildred, who is the worst. Yeah, very good. Uh, no, Philip Carey. Yes. This whole book is of human bondage, and the last name is specifically the one that's especially notable here. Um, As a slight I'm not aside, going to ignore Philip, but yeah. How many people do you think we will get accidentally listening to any of these episodes, thinking <laughs> it's a Fifty Shades of Grey podcast? Oh no! <laughs> oh no! If you if you did that, and you're this far in. Actually, that's real impressive. That is really impressive. Because you've gone three and a half hours holding out hope. Um, and yeah. also, we are sorry. We should have thought to mention of Human Bondage is the, the secret sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> in this series. Which I already did like call of Human Bondage a Twilight book. You did. So that, I feel like, draws You're like a circle. Full circle on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Full, 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 awful, awful circle. Yes. Anyway, sorry, we're we're no, with right. Michaeling here. Uh, Carrie. So a couple things that Carrie does here: bondage. So Carrie is a uh, homophone for Carrie to sure. carry a burden. Yes. Uh, in the bondage, like a slave, but also Carrie includes the word care, uh, yes. or um, feeling, or desire, or passion, or worry, or any of those sorts of. Um, feeling words. Sure. Um, so again, that's the bondage that he is bound to, to the emotion, to the desire, uh, which is largely just plucked from Spinoza's ethics, uh, which um, he mentions in the foreword. What what specifically is plucked from the ethics? The, the just that human title? bondage of human bondage yes. is okay. from Spinoza's ethics. Yes. Um, and it, specifically, he's talking about the bondage of desire. Right. Um, and passion uh, and things like that. So Carrie is definitely part of that. Philip is is tied to the same concept a little bit, too, because it's a Greek name that means lover of horses. Oh, um, okay. Which, uh, on the one hand, Philip is maybe one of the only names in English that includes a word for love. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so there's there's that um, with Phil. But then the, the hip part, the horse part, is a beast of burden um sure so there, there's there's all that thing. do you think there's any significance to like the the biblical philip maybe you, i don't did know did you like, think about that at all not not necessarily because he's one of the the quote-unquote lesser apostles um, sure i was just wondering if there was any like one characteristic or anything not that i'm aware of because that's that's like just what i always think about anytime i reach an apostle name like oh sure if, if uh if someone's name is thomas i assume that they're gonna like doubt some doubt something yeah 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 but no not nothing that i 
know of necessarily. So the other thing but, that I thought of while you were while you were uh, saying this um, uh, is just, I, and I have no idea if this is anything, but it's that that homophone Philip F I L L I P. Okay. Which is specifically uh, a word for sort of striking a horse with like a mm. a what. A, like a short whip, like the the kind that Jack uses. Uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. But to that striking motion, mm-hmm. I believe is called a fillip. Hmm. And it, it it if I was if I was to go anywhere with that idea, it would just be, you know, to think that um, he. So again, you said horse in your own. Yep. You know the the idea of a horse with blinders, someone being led along a certain path without being able to. Uh, Turn sure. aside. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I think that's definitely valid to to look at with all of this. And and sure. we noticed too that uh, the earlier version of this book was about a character named Stephen Carey, right? Um, which that's another biblical name, Stephen, right? Uh, who was stoned for ridiculing the Pharisees and their Phariseeism. Yeah. Um. He's like he's sort of considered the first martyr, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Which is, again, I mean, we're in names with Michael, so like, yeah. I, I was about to say maybe I'm reading too much into this name, but here in this in this zone, that's impossible. Yeah. Nope. Um, but uh, again, what we talked about, I think, last episode, this idea that, um. Well, we talked maybe it was two episodes ago. We talked about time distance, right? Yep. And um, in the foreword, Malm talks about uh, that he wrote what essentially would be like an earlier draft of this novel or an earlier version. Um, but he said it, and he tried to get it published. And he said it was rejected, and he said that was the best possible thing because the version that exists of Human Bondage is a much better novel. Mm-hmm. Um. And it makes me wonder if that that transition from Stephen to Philip is uh, tied in with that that idea of time distance because I'm going to have to assume that the novel he wrote when he was younger and much closer to uh, this novel's Philip's age at the end of it, mm-hmm. um, he was much less reflective, much less able to... Um, sort of uh get any distance and so his self-conception may have been much more martyrous sure um in within the last like five pages or whatever of this of this novel uh you know philip goes through that where he he says uh well sally's pregnant so self-sacrifice rapturous whatever yeah reflections on self-sacrifice but then within the next like two pages he says well no it wasn't self-sacrifice he wanted this right Mm -hmm. um and it makes me wonder if the earlier version of this novel would have cut off with that self-sacrifice passage and like that's what he's done that's where he's he's gone and that it's it's that like humbling that comes with age that maybe he's a lesser apostle now yeah um who's sure doesn't have to have that like sheen of of martyrdom sure. on him. Well, it occurs to me too that um, there's another character uh, in the the Bible who said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." 
and that's Stephen. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, so, yeah, that's um, that's maybe a, a connection that was made there. But, you know, yeah. there's definitely a, a deliberate choice to change it from Stephen to Philip. Sure. Um, so, is it, do you have any more names? Not really. Uh, there, there are certainly other interesting names, and I, I could maybe think of some some things to go through with them, but I think Philip Carey is definitely the most interesting of them all. Yeah. Um, like, I think you could do a name study and drill down into it if you really wanted to. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Really... You know, like I'm sure you could, you know, the the uh, uh, authors generally pick names with some care. Oh, yes. Um, though, we were talking about, you know, going south with Dr. South or whatever. Yeah. We've mentioned that a couple times, and it just put me in mind of, a, like, just a stupid Facebook forward or whatever that, um, I'm not going to be able to quote it precisely, but it was something about how, like, authors, you know... Parents, when they pick a name, oh, hey, Veronica sounds nice. Mm-hmm. And then it's like authors when they pick a name. All right, what is this character's cultural heritage? What is the symbolic importance? You know, what is what is their uh, uh, role? What can I foreshadow with this name? Yep. And then someone else, you know, is like, on the other hand, also authors when they pick a name, sir looks around room, Lamprey... Of Tableshire, <laughs> so, you know. So uh-huh. this is really just a extended version of of saying, yeah, maybe he was phoning it in when he named Doctor South. Yeah. Um, which is fine. In in a novel this big and well populated, he's allowed one. I would yeah, say. Right. <laughs> um. Yeah. But yeah, like names like Mildred. I, I mean. Certainly, at, at his yeah. time, not necessarily. A, a, I I don't know what the the connotation would be then, but nowadays, Mildred, you think of something kind of mildewy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it kind of just enhances her ugliness. I think you have you have those like D's and those yep. those R's and L. It's it's sort of a dreary name to say, and I don't think. I I think. A name with a lot of dread. <laughs> yeah, literal dread in it. Um, I think it's it's not too much of a stretch to say a hundred years ago that that uh, some of at least euphonically or whatever mm-hmm. the opposite of euphonically like uh, those connotations would have been similar. Sure. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's uh, that's wrong. The thing it was actually the the thing it was making me think of was a. Uh, there is a Betty Davis movie called Mildred Pierce, mm-hmm. and I, it's one of these like. And I'm not being bigoted here. They literally called them women's weepies, where it was, you know, sort of, sort of gothic, sort of like a woman distressed, and she's like miserable and and screamy the whole time. Uh-huh. At least that's what I remember of it from my mom watching it when I was a kid and me reading my book instead. Sure. Um, which is obviously a very accurate. Uh, representation of this film Mm -hmm. but you know in Mildred Pierce you have that dread and that Pierce like it's it's setting you up for this this connotation and that would have been made in the 30s or 40s so Mm -hmm. much closer to 
mom's time than we are. Mm-hmm, and, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I think there's, there is that. The only other one that sticks out to me that I wonder about is Cronshaw. Yeah, I was thinking about that one too. And I don't know if it's, that, if I mean, there's anything there. He's kind there. of a crusty character. Yeah. Which that name kind of could bring to mind. I just wonder, like, if yeah. there, what, like, ethnic. Yeah. You know heritage that name has if any because it's certainly he hangs around in paris but it doesn't sound french no if no. i had to guess it sounds maybe polish or maybe sure. like bohemian like czech or something yeah mm-hmm. um so i guess that could have some significance with him being even an outsider to the the realm that he has chosen sure. kind of kind of a thing which is kind of how he's viewed mm, mm-hmm. he's he's almost like this oracle that you consult who yeah. you want his approval but he's also very othered yeah so oh, interesting yeah oh uh, another name that might be significant um philip's mother her name is helen oh <laughs> uh as in the face that launched a thousand ships yeah um I couldn't so, remember it, and I was going to be like, please tell me it's not Jocasta. <laughs> no. Uh, no, but, like, just that um, that sort of ideal beauty yeah. that uh, is striven for, but never won without great strife. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know, that's there. Uh, yeah, I think that's all I wanted to do with names of Michael. Very good. So. Well, when I asked you if you were satisfied with names with Michael, I did have something somewhere else oh, okay. in mind to go, but here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what that was anymore. Oh, all right. <laughs> I got too interested in the in the names. Yeah, no, I got nothing. That's all right. That's all right. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the aspect that Cronshaw uh, brought up, actually. Sure. Um. I, to... I want to say we yeah. could do an entire episode on Cronshaw. Certainly we could. Cronshaw Absolutely. might be the, like, Hendiades of the series of episodes. Okay. Because I already think, you know, we're we're theoretically 25 minutes out from the end of this show. Yep. And I already think that if I... It would take longer than that to do everything I think it was possible to do with Cronshaw. Sure. But well, anyway, go can on. We, can we settle on uh, just talking about his theory for the meaning of life? Yes. Um... Which, again, we could do 25 minutes on, We but, certainly could. But please, let me stop interrupting you. Well, he tells Philip that the meaning of life uh, can be found in a Persian rug. Yes. And says that he can't tell him what it means, but Philip has to find it for himself. Yes. Um, because Cronshaw is a jerk. He is a huge jerk. Big old butt. Um... But, uh, yeah, so Philip ultimately comes and settles down on the idea that uh, it's meaningless. Yes. He, he settles into a nihilism yeah. uh, about life. And the Persian rug fits that picture because it's just a thing that is made and beauty is put into it, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, it's something that you're going to walk on and sit on and whatever. Yeah. It's it, it it doesn't matter that it looks nice, but it but that is what it that is what matters. That's all that matters. Then, yeah, is that you put beauty into it, right? Uh, and that's kind of 
do you think Philip is right? Do you think he hit what Cronshaw was getting at? In a sense, yes. And in another sense, no. Okay. Because I think... um, I'm trying to decide how much of an idiot I want to potentially make myself sound like. <laughs> because I know a little bit about Persian art and, okay. and Persian rugs, but not very much at all. Sure. Um, but I, I want to say that the, the patterns on a Persian rug are historically meant to be abstract yeah. because they express something that can only be expressed abstractly. Sure. And I, I, I don't know how much, uh, credibility this has or, or if I'm giving mom too much credit. But it's almost Dadaist in a sense that I feel that what Cronshaw meant is that if you can express it, you're wrong. Oh, okay. That the the meaning of life, if 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 that phrase has any meaning in itself or has any yeah is not an illusion that as soon as you try to delineate as delineate it as soon as you try to sort of box it in which is all that words do is they they build boxes and make boxes mm-hmm. um that you don't have the meaning again anymore sure um that's that's how i always su- summarize dadaism to people for who don't know anything about it for better or for worse probably for worse but my summary summary is just that if you understand it you don't understand it Sure. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I to me like that's what Cronshaw was getting at. Which this this the way that Philip expresses it is probably the closest you can get to expressing it in words. Sure. But it's still wrong. Yeah. And again, this you know, I don't know. I honestly don't know how much of that is me reading my own sort of extracurricular experience and readings into this novel and into what Cronshaw said. Yeah. Um, versus actually being able to back that up with the text. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's like where I go with it sort of instinctively. Yeah. Sure. And I, I wasn't necessarily trying to trap you with it either. I, <laughs> I honestly don't know what I think. I, I, I think the way Philip comes about that answer is too easy. Yes. That it, the way it's set up, it, 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 that can't be the yeah. correct answer. Because, like you say, it's something that Cronshaw could have just told him. Right. Um, it, it's something that could have been expressed, and so why wouldn't he just say it? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe a simpler version of what I was trying to say is... The idea that the meaning is the search for the meaning. Sure. But again, if it's that, Cronshaw could have just told him. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, saying too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, no, it, it's it, it's an interesting aspect of Cronshaw's um, character. Yeah. Maybe, maybe and, just the idea that, like, to say the meaning is the search for the meaning is too simplistic, but the idea is that if you were if you were to have this Persian rug and to put it up on your wall and to search for meaning in it every day and to find a different one, that would be the actual meaning. Okay. In other words, to never sort of 
get complacent and stop looking. Sure. Um. Yeah, it's probably the closest that I can that I can uh, get to that. Philip's um, kind of revelation about this too, whether it's what Cronshaw was getting at or not, uh, happens around the same time he walks by the Thames. I think it's the Thames. Yeah. Uh, and the the river is rolling, and and that uh, strikes him as also illustrative of the nihilism of life. Right. Uh, that, you know, it's just, it's moving along. It just shows that everything changes and nothing matters. Which, of um, course, goes back to Greek philosophy before Socrates. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know who you're talking I would about. be really smart if I could actually make this reference right now. Heraclitus, maybe? Maybe. I can't remember one exactly. Of, one of the few, like, pre-Socratic Greek philosophers in fact two yeah there are a couple that have done the same thing and they were both pre-socratics two of the pre-socratic greek philosophers used the rolling of a river as a metaphor for life yep Mm -hmm. the one said you can never step into the same river twice because the river is run and and washed itself away and then the second one like one-upped him and said you can never step into the same river once yep (laughs) which i have listened recently to the history of philosophy podcast which is great, and that, from what I understand from that, that's a too simplistic version of both of what those philosophers said. Sure. But I can't remember the not simplistic version, so we're going to go with this one. Right, just go listen to that podcast. Yeah. <laughs> the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. Yep. Such a good name for a podcast run by a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So good. But, um, yeah, what, what, what was interesting to me about that section when he analyzes life as the river is it's shortly after that that he finds himself in the south by the sea oh sure and where does the river go right (laughs) but there to the sea and in classically in literature the sea is a symbol of freedom right uh the whole book has been about bondage the sea is where there's freedom And so the the river is flowing, and he's been flowing. He's been this rolling stone gathering no moss, continually right. changing, continually going through life until he does finally settle in this freedom of this ocean. Right. And I think there there is meaning for him, because there in the ocean, he's not just striving to find meaning. He's settled with the wife with right. children with a career right he he's calmed down <laughs> <laughs> yeah a good deal yeah uh and and found that freedom there um yeah which it occurred to me as you were saying this is almost a very british version of the metaphor sure um just in the sense that you know the english sort of english and british national identity is the fact that they're circumscribed by the sea. Yep. Um, Continental identities are much more associated with rivers and not necessarily with the sea. Sure. Um, Whereas there's always, in the British consciousness, there's always the sense that the sea is just surrounding them. Yep. Um, I feel like I could write a master's thesis on that set of statements, but I don't have anything more profound... That comes immediately to mind. Well, I think it's certainly in this book. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. The, the crossing, even, and the recrossing mm-hmm. of, the, mm-hmm. of the sea. Yeah. So I had two things I wanted to... Sure. As briefly as possible mention before we're, before we're out here. I can't remember what one of them was. So I'm going to just go into the other one quick. Um, so the young woman that he has his weird thing with in art school. Fanny Price. Thank you. Fanny Price. And this is just an aside that I never never found a segue for, so I'm yeah. just dropping it here in the appendices. Um, <laughs> Fanny Price at one point tells him uh, that he just needs to believe in her in himself. Uh-huh. Um, which number one, I th- I think that this novel wholly rejects that as a complete yes. philosophy. Um, number two. Uh, the uh, Fanny Price's ultimate fate and the fact that she sort of embodies the believe in yourself philosophy over against literally any data from the outside world. Yep. Um, probably tells you all you need to know about that. Absolutely illustrates the failure of that ideology. <laughs> yes. Um, but number three, it reminded me of a passage from G.K. Chesterton. I think it's in Orthodoxy, which is his he calls it his spiritual autobiography um where he he mentions that someone some like publisher that he knew was saying this platitude to him one day that you, you just need to believe in yourself and chesterton just had this this like epiphany where he realized that the people who believe in themselves like the the closer you get to a full synthesis of that philosophy the more likely you are to be in an in an insane asylum. Yeah, sure. He said, you know, he he knows someone who is in an asylum who fully believes that he is Napoleon, uh-huh. and that is the most complete belief in the self that of anyone that he knows of. Sure. Um, and you know, obviously, the person is insane. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to mention that. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's one other thing that I wanted to mention, but I can't remember what it was, and we're uh, running right butt up against our time. Mm. So, I'm going to stand up and pull my pants down and let you uh, have, <laughs> have, your, have your punishment of me. Wow. Okay, let's, uh, let's, let's punish you. Um, uh, don't, don't clap right now. I don't do that. Need you to <laughs> what? Now <laughs> what? I need you to select for me a uh, uh, a work by Mark Twain. An American claimant. Is that on this bookshelf? Over it here? is absolutely on that bookshelf. Every work by Mark Twain is on that bookshelf. Is Good. it an or is it the? The. It is the. The American I couldn't Clement. remember. I just decided to select the most obscure possible one. Good. Just because I assumed it would All right. not help you, uh, even if it didn't hurt you. Select a page number. 75. 75. All right. On page 75, Ethan, I would like you to start at the top and read... The first, let me see how long this paragraph is. Ah, that's, it's dialogue, so it's pretty short. Um, go ahead and read half of the page. Okay. Read half of the page, but with this half of the page, each sentence 
At each sentence, you must insert an adverb or adjective of your choosing. All right. It could not be done so dirtily, Father. Each of the durned inscriptions would give the same name and the same facts and say he was under each and all of these monuments, and that would not answer at all. The Earl nestled uncomfortably, raggedly in his chair. No, he said. That is a dirty objection. That is a seriously dirty objection. I see no serious way out. There was a generally opaque silence for a while. No, I did that wrong. There's already an ad adjective in this yeah, one. Yeah, you gotta add another one. There was a generally general silence for a while. <laughs> which still still preserves my right to go general silence. <laughs> general silence. Uh, then... Hawkins said, matter-of-factly, It seems to me that if we mixed the three early... early that if we mixed the three problematic ramifications together, <laughs> the Earl grasped him by the hand and heartily shook it gratefully. <laughs> It solves the whole dirty problem, he said. <laughs> one ship, one funeral, one grave, one monument. It is admirably, adjectivally conceived. <laughs> All right, that's enough. Okay. I think you've been punished thoroughly. That is that is actually just about half the page. Nope. I was planning to go down to the end of the paragraph, but, but, I but think I'll, that, uh, that's I'll take it. Yep. So, there, you've been punished. Ugh. <laughs> My butt is red. <laughs> wow! Uh, and, and I said red, and yeah. I read. <laughs> Very good. Yep. Uh, okay. Alright, on to ratings? Gentle listener, I want you to know, Michael took that book from my 1922 Harper... Harper Brothers? I can't remember. Anyway, 1922 Complete Works of Mark Twain. Yep. Which was the only thing I asked for for Christmas when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the end of my humble brag. <laughs> I know you're all jealous. Everybody. Everybody's jealous. Anyway, yep. uh, so we have some ratings to do. Ratings. Um... I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling, Michael will obviously edit this part out, <laughs> surely this part. So, uh, first up, we must rate the scotch. Mm-hmm, Lagavulin 16, um, yeah, I'm gonna give this five stars. I, I will always give Lagavulin 16 five stars, it's amazing. It's so woody, so smoky, so utterly delicious. It's an every time scotch. It's something I could drink any day of the week. 
and be perfectly happy. Um, there's there's some sweet honey in there. There's some florals. There's some uh, maybe citrus, some dark fruit. Hmm, subtly, uh, but wood. <laughs> Wood is mostly what I'm getting out of this, and it's sure. it's a good, thick, deep, dark wood, and I love it. So, I'm going to give this scotch 4.5 stars. Uh-huh. Um, I honestly, from literally everything I knew about it, I expected to give it 5, and obviously 4.5 is, like, not that far off. No. Um, and the only other scotch I've given 4.5 on this podcast is the Glen Fodry that we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few rounds ago, um, and which is interesting because you know Lagavulin is quite famous. This is an older Scotch. The Glen Fouldry was a a twelve year old, and the mm-hmm. thought that I kept having because that was the only one that like in my mind, you know, I I came up in my mind when I was drinking this one. Other than Lafroy's ten year old, because of the, the oh yeah intense smoky elements, but. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had the thought that scotches, I think, fall into, especially, like, the better scotches fall into two camps, and the one is, like, doing as much as possible and making them work together, and the other one is sort of doing things, doing less things, but doing them extremely well. Right. And I think the Glenn Fodry did the first one really well, where it was Mm -hmm. just, like, so much going on, so interesting. Whereas this Lagavulin does, I would say maybe like four or five things, but it does sure. them exquisitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I will never be sorry to drink the scotch. I'm not sorry I paid the the uh, price that it was, mm-hmm. which was less at um, the, the total wine sure. that I bought it from, but it was more than other things would be at the total wine even. Um, so like, I'm not sorry for that. I would never be sorry to you know, pay, like, a bar price for a pour of this scotch. Um, And, yeah, so I I love a lot of things. Like, there, to me, there was a lot of, like, wood wood smoke, Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting, because Lafroy, to me, which is, like, the other smokiest Mm -hmm. scotch I think I've ever had, tastes specifically of peat. And this was much more woody. Yes. Um, They're both smoky, but very different smoke. Yeah, which I didn't expect. I expected Mm -hmm. it to be much more similar. Um, And this one, there's like black pepper notes in it. Oh, yeah. Which Mm -hmm. has, which I think is like part of that woody. Like it almost tastes like if you grilled really good meat over a fire Mm -hmm. and then you just drank, like could turn, through alchemy, you could turn the coals from that fire into scotch. It is almost meaty. Yeah, yeah, and, there's... And, 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 and not necessarily that meat is the flavor, but it's got that sort of tone. Yeah, yeah, definitely a tone of, of meatiness. Um, and there was, like, uh, so yeah, it's, it's got that wood, it's got that meaty. I did have some floral, even grassy stuff yeah. going mm-hmm. on, um, which I love. Uh, uh, what was the other one? There was another thing about it I was going to say. Oh, there's like, at the same time as all of that, there's like caramel notes going yeah. on. Um, and I did, like I read, where's my, honey. Where's my bottle? Um, I didn't specifically detect honey, though honey, mm. to me, I don't know, honey blends to sure. me, so I, I don't always necessarily detect it. But 
that quote I read at the beginning of this episode or the yeah. last episode, um, someone presumably from the 18th century said, uh, whiskey just as fine as new milk. Yeah. And to me, there was like a milky quality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, one of my favorite rye whiskeys is, uh, uh, I forget the New Holland Distilling, who also makes Dragon's Milk Stout. Ah, yes. Um, and they have a rye whiskey that they age in their Dragon's Milk barrel, mm-hmm. so it's like in a milk stout. And there was one note in this scotch that was exactly the same to me mm-hmm. um, as the, the milky note that I pick up from that rye. Interesting. Uh, so I, I can see the milk thing, but to me, that milk note goes much more into like caramel. Um, or, or vanilla even. Sure. Um, so, and, you know, those are obviously flavors that dance around the honey realm. So, like, I could definitely see why you'd say honey. Um, so yeah, obviously a lot going on here. Really, really good. Yeah. I, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't, like, I expected to meet my five star scotch and I just, it didn't quite get there, but. Alright, alright. You know, still well worth the price of admission, well worth the the journey. I respect that. Uh, okay. So, Michael, how would you rate Of Human Bondage on a scale of buy, borrow, or forget about it? I am going to say borrow. And I'm going to say that specifically because that's how I first came to the book. I borrowed it from the library, okay. read it, and... Loved it enough to thereafter seek it out whenever I was in a used bookstore um, sure. to, to buy it. Um, and I would expect... Um, I, I wouldn't expect everybody to love it, but I would expect if you borrow it and get something out of it, it would be enough to make you want to read it again. And maybe then buy it, but not necessarily. You might be content borrowing it. So that's where I'm going. Borrow. Because it is a big book, uh, and if you really don't like it, it's a big book to have sitting on your shelf uh, at home. So, uh, borrow is what I'm saying. All right. So I'm going to say borrow. (laughs) And I'm going to break Nat's heart by doing this, because he just wants us to fight. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's interesting, because I guess this is just in my head, but I would have assumed you would say buy uh-huh. at the beginning and I definitely was prepared potentially to say forget about it. Ah, okay. Um, so it's interesting that we kind of met in the middle here. Yep. So here's here's my thing. Like, and I, I have been saving this to the ratings portion to harp on a little bit. Um, is that the reason that I threw it across the room twice, <laughs> the reason that I skipped 40 pages and the reason that I was prepared to say forget about it is all Mildred. Uh-huh. Um, and it's not just Mildred, like, as a person. I think she's a much more interesting character mm-hmm. and deserves better than me throwing her across the room. But um, the, the Philip stuff that goes on with Mildred and the patterns that he gets into seem to recur over and over and it just got to the point that I knew what was coming, and yep. I was sick of it. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, there are certain, like, scenes that I see in, in dramatic works, like in TV or film, where a character is screaming, and I'm like, I know this is 
appropriate to the character that's been built here, but I don't want to sit here and listen to screaming. <laughs> um, and I will turn a TV show off because of that. And that's that's a similar like mental place to where I was mm. getting to the verge of just just uh, tossing this book for good. Um, but what I'm gonna say is I'm gonna say borrow it specifically uh, borrow it from a library that has like a four week loan period for books, which I think is pretty standard. I would mm -hmm. guess. I think, so. I think probably 90 plus percent of libraries for books, you have like a four week yeah. loan period if it's not like a new special one or whatever. So clear your reading schedule, borrow this for a four week period, start reading it immediately. So that's why I say clear your schedule, like mm -hmm. have that four week period. If by the end of the four week period, you are forcing yourself to read it instead of actively wanting to read it, return it to the library without mercy and just forget about it. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you know, if you if you finish it or if you skim your way to the end, like all well and good. There is plenty in this book that's worth reading, mm -hmm. um, and worth thinking about, worth discussing. I guess I ended up feeling like what I got out of this book, I had already gotten mostly out of other books that I liked reading mm. more um but you know that's that's my very specific experience and it it was a good enough book that i would say give it a chance mm -hmm. not you know there are certain books that i would say read it no matter what and this is definitely not one of those um but i would say give it a chance mm -hmm. um don't spend money on it until you decide that it is actually a reread it book. Mm -hmm. You know, give it a chance. All right. Cool. So now we rate the pairing uh, between the book and the scotch. Mm -hmm. What did you think of that, Michael? See, with uh, with the the log of Will in sixteen, I'm, it, it's going to be hard for me not to say perfect match for just about anything. But right. I honestly do think for this that it is a perfect match. Yeah, because it 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 is just a good dark smoky scotch to sit and feel things while you're drinking and yeah. reading this book, and um, yeah, I I I think it is just it, it's it's the perfect sort of sit in a, an old library in a mansion by the sea and drink yes. this scotch and read this book. It's perfect. I, I, I tend to agree for on this one. Yeah. Like, I think it's a perfect match. Like, if you're going to read this book, preferably you would do it in an old English manor by the sea or a Scottish castle by the yes. sea. And just, yeah. Uh, just, you know, sit there, drink it, feel things. I could see... Okay, what is Sally's father's name? Athelney. Mr. Yeah, Athelney. I could see Philip and Athelney, like killing an afternoon drinking this exact scotch yes and with all of the stuff we said right towards the end here about you know the the sea being very symbolically important um this feels like a scotch you drink i guess like we sort of both just said like by the sea by the sea yep so all of that yeah it does make sense if you're going to bother reading this book 
this is the perfect scotch to read it with. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, now that we've reached the end of this extremely long journey, mm-hmm. now we introduce our next couple books for this show. Yes. Michael, would you like to uh, do us the honor? I will. I'm bringing a book that uh, is going to make us relevant. I mean, ready to be relevant? You've brought the only book so far that has fostered a tweet by the author uh, specifically showing that he read the book. Right. And And also. He listens to the podcast. That's what I meant by read the book. He did write the book. He wrote it. He did presumably read it, but also, yeah. All I'm saying is you have made us the most relevant so So, far. So here we go more relevance. Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Have you heard of this book? I've heard of the book. I've heard of the author. I don't know anything else about either of them. Um, Colson Whitehead is kind of an uh, up-and-coming author. Um, he, he's had a lot of critical acclaim lately, and this is... I don't know if it's his most recent novel. It's maybe his second most. There might be another one that's more recent than this. But um, the conceit behind the Underground Railroad is that it, he, it's kind of alternate history where the Underground oh. Railroad is literally a railroad. Oh, interesting. Um, so, yeah. Struck me as very interesting. I, yeah. I, I thought about maybe looking at some of his other books, but I kept coming back to this one. Sure. I, I, I think uh, I was introduced to him on either another podcast or on... MPR maybe sure but um, I was immediately intrigued uh, and wanted to read this book so I have not read it I don't know anything more okay. about it but uh, yeah we're gonna take this journey together excellent on a, on a, on a railroad Got on it. a railroad um, is this for me yes that's for you thank you I have one for you <gasps> and it's interesting that so we're going to be two white boys <laughs> talking about, like, the black experience in America. Yes. Which is going to just get us, like, into all sorts of trouble. So much trouble. And it's interesting that you went there. Okay. Because my book for us now uh-huh. is about the Native American experience. What? In America. <laughs> um, you know, with the United States of America and all. Uh-huh. So, this is a book... It's called Oklahanali. Um, so it's by an author named R.A. Lafferty, and I was introduced by Lafferty. I was introduced to Lafferty by Gene Wolfe. Oh, um, Gene Wolfe. Uh, I, I got his book uh, Castle of Days, which is an omnibus one that has a few earlier volumes, but one of them is just Gene Wolfe on writers and writing. Mm-hmm. And in one of the essays or the interviews in that book, Wolf is asked like who, what what contemporary science fiction writers he respects the most, right? And this mm-hmm. was an interview in like the late seventies or early eighties. Um, but one of the first names to his lips in that was R. A. Lafferty, um, which prompted me to go on sort of a Lafferty spree. So I read this Wolf book earlier this year. And in the first six months of this year, I have read, I'm on, I'm near the end of my sixth R.A. Lafferty book. Wow. 
Um, and so I've read four of Lafferty's science fiction novels because here's the thing. Lafferty cut his teeth and is most well-known and probably has the most works as a science fiction writer. Okay. Um, so I read four of his science fiction novels. The one I'm currently towards the end of um, is published by Galance, I think is how you say the, the press name. They publish sort of classic science fiction that they do reprints mm -hmm. of. Um, and they published a short story collection called The Best of Ari Lafferty, and I promise this is going somewhere. Um, so in this collection, Neil Gaiman wrote like the general introduction, but then they have well over a dozen like well-known, respected science fiction writers writing introductions to each individual story in this collection, right? Mm -hmm. um, more than one of them said that Okla Hanali is probably Ari Lefferty's best book, and oh. at least one of them said it's, it uh, deserves to stand as one of the great American novels alongside The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and The Great Gatsby. Awesome. Um, now, here's the thing. Okla Hanali is a straight-up historical fiction. Huh. Um, it, it is not science fictional in the least, at least on a surface level. And we'll talk about how it may be on a, on a more, on a deeper level. Um, so Oklahanali was a real person. He was a, a, a chief of the Choctaws and he was born at the exact right point in history for his life to span sort of the first, uh, Encounters of the Choctaw with the the uh, um, you know white influx into the American continent um, through the Trail of Tears through to uh, sort of the flourishing of or the second flourishing of Choctaw civilization before the Civil War to that civilization being wiped out as a result of the Civil War. Like mm -hmm. he saw all of the major like. Uh, events in Choctaw history in the in the 19th century mm -hmm. um and so this is Lafferty's you know fictionalized biography of this man um mm -hmm. and Lafferty uh spent most of his life in Oklahoma um which is sort of central to the what used to be called the Indian territories where mm -hmm. a lot of the the Trail of Tears yeah you know the tribes that went on the Trail of Tears got relocated um, so this is, is, you know, even though Ari Lafferty is a white guy, this is very, um, much in the experience of the place that Lafferty found himself. Okay. Um, and I, so I read this book, uh, a few months ago and I have not been able to get it out of my head. Oh, okay. I, I think I have thought about it every day since I finished it. Nice. Um, and... I just I need needed to reread it, and what okay. better venue to do it um, than forcing you to also reread it with right. me? Right. Um, the the closest thing to like a a science fiction element that this book has is it's it's very a lot of people describe it as tall tales. Okay. Um, in sure. the tradition of the American tall tale. Yeah. Um, and again, whether that's true or not is is debatable. So the very last thing I want to say about this one for now mm. is that uh, this book was published in the 1970s and went out of print 
It is currently in print because of, because it has been reissued by the University of Oklahoma Press. Oh, okay. So I know some of our listeners like to get their books on Audible, and I don't know if this one will be there. Um, but there's a relatively inexpensive copy available on Amazon and maybe on, I assume on some other sites probably, um, where you can get this book uh, that way. It is It is not completely out of print and hard to find it's just a little hard to find just a little um but it is it is well worth the effort um and there are there are some other complicating factors with that book but with this book but i uh i feel like we'll get there when we actually talk about this book all right sounds good i'm excited okay so thank you everyone for listening along, for bearing with us, for <laughs> everything. Um, so please read along, give us your feedback. Uh, I'm sure we'll have specific links to our books in the in the show notes mm-hmm, for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do want to, to talk to us about Of Human Bondage, about your hangnail, about really anything, <laughs> um, yeah. Your hangnail. You know who you are. Uh, please go to the... There are several ways to contact to us. Contact to us. Yes, I said it. Yep, and I'm owning did. it. There's the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line. There is at Room with Scotch on Twitter. You can contact me directly on Twitter at Bjartlet. That's B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, Michael, where can they Megalilienthal you on Twitter? Yep, it's at Megalilienthal M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L uh, on Twitter. Excellent. <laughs> um, you can join the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. If you request to join, we will let you in unless you are Andrew Jackson. <laughs> that is a joke that will make sense in like four episodes. Something like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I got ahead of myself. Uh, we will do your homework. We will not do it well. We do condone plagiarism because it's funny and because we require you to verbatim copy every word in our episodes so that your professors will know about our show yep. and, and listen to us while they put you in plagiarism jail. Yep. Small price to pay for our fame. For our fame. <laughs> uh, so go to our website, tapestryradio.com slash scotchcast, fill out the form, um, well, it could be past homework, it could be current homework, preferably it's current homework so we can get you into plagiarism jail. Yep. Uh, if you like our show, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. Uh, there's Intermission, our audio drama podcast, Pokemon Rollout, our Not Even Gonna Try, go ahead, Michael. Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast. Thank you. Um... Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts uh, or Google Play or Stitcher or Podbean, Podknife, Podkite, Podkite, Pod Bogart. <laughs> I didn't just say Pod and then look at the poster on the other side of my room. <laughs> um, that's another podcast platform. Anyway, the we we only really get. Word spread about us by ratings, reviews, and like word of mouth and yeah. shares on social media and all that stuff, which we are not good at. So please be good at it for us if you like us. 
If you don't like us, why are you listening to this very end of this podcast? <laughs> um, seems like maybe you like us more than you thought you did, Philip Carey. Maybe, just maybe, you even love us. Uh, but not the way that you think love is. Um, I want to know what love is. I was afraid you were going to do that. Uh, I thought my wife had gone to to bed so that I was out of danger, but obviously I'm the idiot here. (laughs) Uh, I have a webcomic, Pin Porter Girl Detective, uh, film noir, fairies, fantasy, school girls who are smarter than everyone around them. Talking pigeons. Talking pigeons. Everyone's favorite thing. Why did I not say that first? Um, It's... Pin Porter Girl Detective on Google will get you there. That's the easiest way. Uh, and just remember, until next time, thank you. We love you. We love you. Good night. <laughs> and now you know the rest of the story. Thank you, Papa Walt. Obscurantism and Obfuscation. 
orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.